0: Section two of the Purple Cloud. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anise. The Purple Cloud by Matthew Phipps Scheel. Section two. But I was saying that when Clark left me, I was drawing on my gloves to go to see my fiancee, the Countess Cloda, when I heard the two voices most clearly. Sometimes the urgency of one or other impulse is so overpowering that there is no resisting it. And it was so then with the one that bid me go. I had to traverse the distance between Harley Street and Hanover Square, and all the time it was as though something shouted at my physical ear, Since you go, breathe no word of the boreal and Clark's visit. And another shout, Tell, tell, hide nothing. It seemed to last a month. Yet it was only some minutes before I was in Hanover Square, and Clodagh in my arms. She was, in my opinion, the most superb of creatures, Clodagh, that haughty neck which seemed always scorning something, just behind her left shoulder. Superb. But, ah, I know it now. A godless woman, Clodagh, a bitter heart. Clodagh once confessed to me that her favourite character in history was Lucrezia Borgia, and when she saw my horror immediately added, "'Well, no, I am only joking.' Such was her duplicity, for I see now that she lived in the constant effort to hide her hyena's heart from me. Yet, now I think of it, how completely did Clodagh enthrall me. I proposed marriage was opposed by both my family and hers, by mine because her father and grandfather had died in lunatic asylums, and by hers because, forsooth, I was neither a rich nor a noble match.' A sister of hers, much older than herself, had married a common country doctor, Peters of Taunton, and this so-called mesalliance made the so-called mess with me doubly detestable in the eyes of her relatives. Clodagh's extraordinary passion for me was to be stemmed neither by their threats nor prayers. What a flame, after all, was Clodagh! Sometimes she frightened me. She was at this date no longer young, being by five years my senior, as also by five years the senior of her nephew, born from the marriage of her sister with Peters of Taunton. This nephew was Peter Peters, who was to accompany the boreal expedition as doctor, botanist, and meteorological assistant. On that day of Clark's visit to me I had not been seated five minutes with Clodagh when I said, Dr. Clark (laughs) has been talking to me about the expedition. He says that if anything happened to Peters I should be the first man he would run to, He has had an absurd dream. The consciousness that filled me as I uttered these words was the wickedness of me, the crooked wickedness. But I could no more help it than I could fly. Clodagh was standing at a window holding a rose at her face. For quite a minute she made no reply. I saw her sharp-cut, florid face in profile, steadily bent and smelling. She said presently, in her cold, rapid way, The man who first plants his foot on the North Pole will certainly be ennobled. I say nothing of the many millions. I only wish that I was a man. I don't know that I have any special ambition that way,' I rejoined. I am very happy in my warm Eden with my Clodagh. I don't like the outer cold. "'Don't let me think little of you,' she answered pettishly. "'Why should you, Clodagh? I am not bound to desire to go to the North Pole, am I?' "'But you would go, I suppose, if you could?' "'I might. I doubt it. There is our marriage.' "'Marriage, indeed. It is the one thing to transform our marriage from a sneaking difficulty to a ten times triumphant event.' "'You mean that if I personally were the first to stand at the Pole—' "'But there are many in an expedition. It is very unlikely that I personally—' "'For me you will, Adam,' she began—' "'Will, Clodagh?' I cried. "'You say, will? "'There is not even the slightest shadow of a probability. "'But why? "'There are still three weeks before the start. "'They say—' "'She stopped. "'She stopped. "'They say what?' "'Her voice dropped. "'That Peter takes atropine.' "'Ah, I started then. "'She moved from the window, sat in a rocking-chair, "'and turned the leaves of a book—' without reading. We were silent, she and I, I standing, looking at her, she drawing the thumb across the leaf edges, and beginning again, contemplatively. Then she laughed dryly a little, a dry, mad laugh. "'Why did you start when I said that?' she asked, reading now at random. "'I? I did not start, Clodagh. What made you think that I started? I did not start.' Who told you, Clodagh, that Peters takes atropine? He is my nephew, I should know. But don't look dumbfounded in that absurd fashion. I have no intention of poisoning him in order to see you, a multimillionaire and a peer of the realm. My dearest Clodagh! I easily might, however. He will be here presently. He is bringing Mr. Wilson for the evening." Wilson was going as electrician of the expedition clodagh i said believe me you jest in a manner which does not please me do i really she answered with that haughty stiff half-turn of her throat do i really she answered with that haughty stiff half-turn of her throat then i must be more exquisite but thank heaven it is only a jest women are no longer admired for doing such things (laughs) ha ha no no longer admired clodagh Oh, my good Lord, let us change this talk! But now she could talk of nothing else. She got from me that afternoon the history of all the polar expeditions of late years, how far they reached, by what aids, and why they failed. Her eyes shone, she listened eagerly. Before this time, indeed, she had been interested in the boreal, knew the details of her outfitting, and was acquainted with several members of the expedition. But now, suddenly, her mind seemed wholly possessed, my mention of Clark's visit apparently setting her well a-burn with a pole fever. The passion of her kiss as I tore myself for her embrace that day I shall not forget. I went home with a pretty heavy heart. The house of Dr. Peter Peters was three doors from mine on the opposite side of the street. Toward one that night his footman ran to knock me up with the news that Peters was very ill, I hurried to his bedside, and knew, by the first glance at his deliriums and his staring pupils, that he was poisoned with atropine. Wilson, the electrician, who had passed the evening with him at Clodagh's in Hanover Square, was there. "'What on earth is the matter?' he said to me. "'Poisoned,' I answered. "'Good God, what with?' Atropine. "'Good heavens!' "'Don't be frightened. I think he will recover.' Is that certain? Yes, I think. That is, if he leaves off taking the drug, Wilson. What? Is it he who's poisoned himself? I hesitated. I hesitated. But I said, He is in the habit of taking atropine, Wilson. Three hours I remained there and, God knows, toiled hard for his life. And when I left him in the dark of the foreday, day, my mind was at rest. He would recover. I slept till eleven a.m., and then hurried over again to Peter's. In the room were my two nurses and Clodagh. My beloved put her forefinger to her lips, whispering, "'Shh! He is asleep!' She came closer to my ear, saying, "'I heard the news early. I am come to stay with him till... the last.' We looked at each other some time, eye to eye, steadily, she and I. But mine dropped before Clodagh's. A word was on my mouth to say, but I said nothing. The recovery of Peter's was not so steady as I had expected. At the end of the first week he was still prostrate. It was then that I said to Clodagh, Clodagh, your presence at the bedside here somehow does not please me. It is so unnecessary. Unnecessary, certainly, she replied. But I always had a genius for nursing, and a passion for watching the battles of the body— "'Since no one objects, why should you?' "'Ah, I don't know. "'This is a case that I dislike. "'I have half a mind to throw it to the devil.' "'Then do so. "'And you too. "'Go home. "'Go home, Clodagh.' "'But why, if one does no harm, "'in these days of the corruption of the upper classes "'and Roman decadence of everything, "'shouldn't every innocent whim be encouraged "'by you upright ones who strive against the tide?' "'Whims are the brakes of crimes, and this is mine. "'I find a sensuous pleasure, almost a sensual, "'in dabbling in delicate drugs, "'like Helen, for that matter, and Medea and Calypso, "'and the great antique women who were all excellent chemists. "'To study the human ship in a gale, "'and the slow drama of its foundering, "'isn't that quite a thrilling distraction? "'And I want you to get into the habit at once "'of letting me have my little way.' Now she touched my hair with a lofty playfulness that soothed me. But even then I looked upon the rumpled bed and saw that the man there was really very sick. I have still a nausea to write about it. Lucrezia Borgia, in her own age, may have been heroic, but Lucrezia in this late century. One could retch up the heart. The man grew sick on that bed, I say, The second week passed, and only ten days remained before the start of the expedition. At the end of that second week, Wilson, the electrician, was one evening sitting by Peter's bedside when I entered. At the moment Clodagh was about to administer a dose to Peter's, but seeing me, she put down the medicine-glass on the night-table, and came toward me. And as she came, I saw a sight which stabbed me, for Wilson took up the deposited medicine-glass, elevated it, looked at it, smelled into it, and he did it with a kind of hurried, light-fingered stealth, and he did it with an underlook, and a meaningness of expression which, I thought, proved mistrust. Meantime Clark came each day. He had himself a medical degree, and about this time I called him in professionally, together with Alan of Cavendish Square, to consult over Peters. The patient lay in a semi-coma, broken by passionate vomitings, and his condition puzzled us all. I formally stated that he took atropine, had been originally poisoned by atropine, but we saw that his present symptoms were not atropine symptoms, but it almost seemed of some other vegetable poison which we could not precisely name. "'Mysterious thing,' said Clark to me when we were alone." "'I don't understand it,' I said. "'Who are the two nurses?' "'Oh, highly recommended people of my own.' "'At any rate, my dream about you comes true, Jeffson. It is clear that Peters is out of the running now.' I shrugged. "'I now formally invite you to join the expedition,' said Clark. "'Do you consent?' I shrugged again. "'Well, if that means consent,' he said— Let me remind you that you have only eight days, and all the world to do in them. This conversation occurred in the dining-room of Peter's house, and as we passed through the door I saw Clodagh gliding down the passage outside, rapidly away from us. Not a word I said to her that day about Clark's invitation. Yet I asked myself repeatedly, did she not know of it? Had she not listened and heard?' However that was, about midnight, to my great surprise, Peters opened his eyes and smiled. By noon the next day his fine vitality, which so fitted him for an arctic expedition, had reasserted itself. He was then leaning on an elbow, talking to Wilson, and, except his pallor and strong stomach pains, there was now hardly a trace of his late approach to death. For the pains I prescribed some quarter-grain tablets of sulfate of morphia, and went away. Now David Wilson and I never greatly loved each other, and that very day he brought about a painful situation as between Peters and me, by telling Peters that I had taken his place in the expedition. Peters, a touchy fellow, at once dictated a letter of protest to Clark, and Clark sent Peter's letter to me, marked with a big note of interrogation in blue pencil. Now all Peters' preparations were made, mine not and he had six days in which to recover himself. I therefore wrote to Clark, saying that the changed circumstances, of course, annulled my acceptance of his offer, though I had already incurred the inconvenience of negotiating with a locum tenens. This decided it. Peters was to go, I stay. The fifth day before the departure dawned. It was a Friday, the 15th June. Peters was now in an armchair. He was cheerful, but with a fevered pulse, and still the stomach pains. I was giving him three-quarter grains of morphia a day. That Friday night, at eleven p.m., I visited him, and found Clodagh there talking to him. Peters was smoking a cigar. "'Ah,' Clodagh said, "'I was waiting for you, Adam. I didn't know whether I was to inject anything to-night. Is it yes or no?' "'What do you think, Peters?' I said. "'Any more pains?' "'Well—' "'Perhaps you had better give us another quarter,' he answered. "'There's still some trouble in the tummy off and on.' "'A quarter grain, then, Cloda, I said. As she opened the syringe-box, she remarked with a pout, "'Our patient has been naughty. He has taken some more atropine.' I became angry at once. "'Peters,' I cried, "'you know you have no right to be doing things like that without consulting me. Do that once more, and I swear I have nothing further to do with you.' rubbish said peters why all this unnecessary heat it was a mere flea-bite i felt that i needed it he injected it with his own hand remarked clodagh she was now standing at the mantelpiece having lifted the syringe-box from the night-table taken from its velvet lining both the syringe and the vial containing the morphia tablets and gone to the mantelpiece to melt one of the tablets and a little of the distilled water there her back was turned upon us, and she was a long time. I was standing, Peters in his armchair smoking. Clodagh then began to talk about a charity bazaar which she had visited that afternoon. She was long. She was long. The crazy thought passed through some dim region of my soul. Why is she so long? Ah, that was a pain, went Peters. Never mind the bazaar. aunt, think of the morphia. Suddenly an irresistible impulse seized me, to rush upon her to dash syringe, tabloids, glass, and all from her hands. I must have obeyed it. I was on the tip-top point of obeying, my body already lent prone. But at that instant a voice at the open door behind me said, "'Well, how is everything?' It was Wilson, the electrician, who stood there. With lightning swiftness I remembered an underlook of mistrust which I had once seen on his face." Oh, well, I I would not, and could not. She was my love. I stood like marble. Clodagh went to meet Wilson with frank right hand, in the left being the fragile glass containing the injection. My eyes were fastened on her face. It was full of reassurance of free innocence. I said to myself, I must surely be mad. An ordinary chat began while Clodagh turned up Peter's sleeve, and kneeling there, injected his forearm. As she rose laughing at something said by Wilson, the drug-glass dropped from her hand, and her heel, by an apparent accident, trod on it. She put the syringe, among a number of others, on the mantelpiece. "'Your friend has been naughty, Mr. Wilson,' she said again, with that same pout. "'He has been taking more atropine.' "'Not really,' said Wilson. "'Let me alone the whole of you,' answered Peters. "'I ain't a child.' These were the last intelligible words he ever spoke. He died shortly before 1 a.m. He had been poisoned by a powerful dose of atropine. From that moment to the moment when the boreal bore me down the Thames, all the world was a mere tumbling nightmare to me, of which hardly any detail remains in my memory. Only I remember the inquest and how I was called upon to prove that Peters had himself injected himself with atropine. This was corroborated by Wilson, and by Clodagh, and the verdict was in accordance. And in all that chaotic hurry of preparation, three other things only, but those with clear distinctness now I remember. The first and chief is that tempest of words which I heard at Kensington from that big-mouthed Mackay on the Sunday night what was it that led me, busy as I was, to the chapel that night? Well, perhaps I know. There I sat and heard him, and most strangely have those words of his peroration planted themselves in my brain. When rising to a passion of prophecy he shouted, And as in the one case transgression was followed by catastrophe swift and universal, so in the other I warned the entire race to look out, thenceforth, for nothing from God but a lowering sky and thundery weather. And the second thing I remember, that on reaching home I walked into my disordered library, for I had had to hunt out some books, where I met my housekeeper in the act of rearranging things. She had apparently lifted an old Bible by the front cover to fling it on the table, for as I threw myself into a chair my eye fell upon the open print near the beginning, the print was very large, and a shaded lamp cast a light upon it. I had been hearing Mackay's wild comparison of the pole with the tree of Eden, and that no doubt was the reason why such a start convulsed me, for my listless eyes had chanced to rest upon some words. The woman gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And a third thing I remember in all that turmoil of doubt and flurry that as the ship moved down with the afternoon tide. A telegram was put into my hand. It was a last word from Cloda, and she said only this: "Be first, for me." End of section two. Recording by Anise, Portland, Oregon. www.strange-medicine.com